Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. On this episode of Most Notorious, an author's battle against time to investigate the murder of his great-grandmother. The coroner comes, makes an initial investigation. He says this woman's been shot uh, not through the open window, the window that had been opened to let in the the cool air at night. He said, no, she's been shot at point-blank range. Um, Someone put a gun to her head. There are powder marks on her temple. But it happened, no one heard the gunshot, and in fact, the gunshot didn't even wake the two-year-old who was in bed next to my great-grandmother. Welcome all to another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. Thank you for listening once again. And a thank you today to Patreon patron Marshall Garland from Winnipeg, Manitoba, who suggested this week's guest after reading a recent review of his book in the Winnipeg Free Press. It's always fun when listener-recommended cases come to fruition. So, let us begin. It is so great to have with me Wayne Hoffman. He is a journalist who has written for publications like the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post, and he is the executive editor of Tablet Magazine and an award-winning novelist. He is here today to talk about his new book called The End of Her, Racing Against Alzheimer's to solve a murder. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yes. So you've written a book that is part memoir, part historical nonfiction. Uh, Is that how you would label this uh, latest book of yours? It's kind of a hard thing to wrap your, (laughs) your genre around. I call it a true crime family memoir. It is my memoir, but also a memoir of my family before I was born. And at the center of it is a true crime. Got it. Got it. It's not a typical nonfiction true crime book in that you are letting readers in on your research journey. That's right. And you switch back and forth between the murder of your great-grandmother and your mother's fight with Alzheimer's. Yes. The, uh, my, mo- my mother's Alzheimer's is actually what got me 
going on the whole project. So in my mind, they are sort of intertwined in the same story, which is why it came out as such a an unusual combination of true crime and family memoir. One thing really led me directly into the other. Right, yes. So your, your mother is obviously a very important part of your book. Uh, what should we know about her? The most important thing to know about my mother is that she's a great storyteller. Uh, she's a very, very funny woman. My, my father once told me she's the funniest abroad I ever met. And she could crack anyone up. And she was such a good storyteller that people who'd already met her and already heard her stories would ask her to tell stories again that they'd already heard which is, you know, unusual. Usually you say, I already heard that story. Tell me something else. People loved hearing her tell stories. And it was her storytelling that got me rolling on this whole adventure because of a story she had told me when I was a child. Many stories she told me were, you know, slight exaggerations, overstated for effect, about how she grew up poor in Jersey City and how little money they had and how difficult it was growing up there. But she had told this one story about her grandmother, my great-grandmother, being killed by a drive-by sniper in broad daylight that just never seemed like the other stories to me. The others seemed like they were perhaps perhaps um, overstated a bit for effect, but this just seemed like baloney. But I didn't say anything until... She developed dementia and later Alzheimer's when I finally told her I don't believe this story. And she challenged me to find out what really happened. And I took the challenge. Right, right. As so often happens when one of these stories is passed down from one generation to the next, uh, details get muddled, facts get embellished. Yes, and, and this one seemed like it was so much more bizarre than the rest of them that it seemed that this one might, might be different. The others were funny, and I knew they weren't 100% true, but I knew they were you know, more or less true. But this one just seemed like there's no way. It's not possible. This didn't happen. So your mother grew up in New Jersey, uh, Her but, mother had grown up in Winnipeg, right? So my my grandmother had grown up in Winnipeg as a as a child, and that's where the that's where the murder had happened. It was my mother's mother's mother, my great grandmother, who was so we assumed or so we'd heard murdered by a drive by sniper while breastfeeding on the front porch in winter in Winnipeg. I don't know why I found that story hard to believe. Did I mention it was outdoors in winter in Winnipeg breastfeeding? Drive-by sniper. None of it made sense. <laughs> Were motives discussed about how or why that could have happened? No. Or did she just uh, leave it at that? No, she left it at that. Quite the contrary. That, that was the whole story. And it was such a shocking story that my mother had heard as a child that she never asked for more details. And so that's the story she told me when I was growing up, that that's what happened to her grandmother, my great-grandmother, that she'd been murdered by this drive-by sniper. And it, it, there was nothing to put it in context. It wasn't like, well, there was a string of drive-by sniper shootings in Winnipeg in 1913, or 
breastfeeding mothers were the common targets of assassins. There was nothing <laughs> to make it seem like it fit into a pattern of anything. Uh, it was just a very bizarre, out-of-the-blue story that was its own encapsulated legend. So how did you, you start the process? You had not written a nonfiction book before. No, I've been a journalist for more than 30 years, though, so I, I know a thing or two about reporting. But this is different. Um, normally, when you're reporting, you know who you're, who you're talking to and what you're looking for. This was, first of all, I was looking to, I wasn't looking to prove something. I was looking to disprove something uh, to show that this drive-by sniper thing never happened. But the bigger challenge I faced was, who was I even looking for? The name on the back of the only photo that exists of my great-grandmother. The name written on the back is Sarah Brooks. You can search and search for Sarah Brooks. You will never find her. And I thought, well, that's not the name of a Jewish immigrant from Russia 100 years ago anyway. So that's not her real name. What was her real name? Well, I don't know. There's nowhere to start to look. With women in particular, especially historically, it's very hard to find them in official documents, police records, newspaper reports, if you don't happen to already know their married name, with immigrants, if you don't know the English names they adopted when they came to North America, and sometimes the names they adopted for official documents, they didn't adopt for anything else. So they weren't even really passed down. So first I had to find this woman whose name on the photograph was Sarah Brooks and whose name in family legend was Shifra. That was her Yiddish name was Shifra. And you can search for Sarah Brooks. You can search for Shifra. You will not find them. They are nowhere to be found. You can search under the, the family family name that was her married name, which was Feinstein. And you won't find her there either. So even though I knew what I needed to do to start the investigation, I actually hit a brick wall almost from the outset and couldn't really get going for another year uh, until I figured out a way around this problem, which was that that's not how they spelled the name back then. The spellings in English have changed because the spellings in English weren't important when they first arrived in North America. They weren't writing things on a form. There was no computer. They were, when a census taker would come, they were saying their, their names aloud to an interpreter who would then write it down by hand. They said, well, her name is Shifra. Well, that doesn't make sense. I don't know. We'll call her Sarah. Sarah. Her name is Sarah. Remember that. Her name is Sarah now. And the last name was Feinstein. Maybe it was Feinstein. Maybe it was something else. How do you spell that? I don't know. Is that how we spelled it last time we came? I don't know. So the big challenge was even finding her name. Once I found her name, I could find a death certificate. Once I found a death certificate, the death certificate said that she had been shot through the head, through the brain. The, the death certificate says bullet wound through brain, homicidal. That was my first break, but that took literally a couple of years to find. Once I found that, I thought to myself as a journalist, well, if a young mother was shot through the head, it would have been in the newspapers, wouldn't it? And sure enough, it was. It was on the front page of every newspaper in the city. And there she was. Now I had finally found her. She was listed not as Shifra, which is what we knew her name as, and nor as Sarah Brooks. She was Mrs. David Feinstein. 
she went by they gave her her husband's first name and her husband's last name and spelled it differently than we do now so it was challenging to find that mrs david feinstein was the sarah brooks who was originally shifra Averbruch from ukraine those are the same person so finding her was a challenge once i found her i could really get going so not only were you learning about the murder specifically but also about your your family history in general my family history and the history uh, sort of more broadly of immigrants to in this case canada but the united states is not so different jewish immigrants but again also non-jewish immigrants faced a lot of the same issues in terms of their identities their names language barriers and how difficult it is to trace certain things through official documents because things weren't spelled consistently they weren't spelled consistently from one day to the next i can look through my the census reports i found from my great-grandparents and the names of their children are spelled differently every time they take a census and i don't mean that they spelled Anne with an e or without an e my mother ethel became hattie became etta her name changed my aunt bernice became bertha they didn't use their english names they used their yiddish names so when the census taker came every few years they'd say i don't know what did we say her name was last time i don't remember and they just make up a new name yeah <laughs> so it's a real challenge and this is not unique to my family this as i realized is a challenge for a lot of immigrants to to north america where you're even something as simple as your name is actually contested ground so what did you learn about your great-grandparents lives and a larger picture what was it like for a jewish immigrant in winnipeg in the years after the turn of the 20th century so there's sort of two halves to their story because of the murder they that arrived separately uh they they married in canada they met and married in canada but my great-grandfather arrived slightly before my great-grandmother they were both young. She was 19. He was in his early 20s when they married. And it's a story of a fam whole families, his entire family, his, he and his seven siblings and his parents all immigrated within two years of each other. And she and her siblings all came over within a few years of each other. Coming to North America and really starting over from scratch and living quite poor and trying to make do and finding whatever work you could possibly get, scrambling to work. But actually, within a few years, things were looking much better. They had moved to a better house. They had moved to a better street. They had set, set aside some money. The Jewish community in Winnipeg was starting to develop. They'd opened synagogues and orphanages and cemeteries. They started having community institutions to serve them. They had a Yiddish theater. And things were really looking up. They were sort of, you know, a model of the family you hear about in sort of glowing terms oh they came to the new world and they pulled themselves up by their bootstraps and they made a name for themselves and they uh they rose through society they got more money they became more secure all of that seemed to be working more or less for about seven years and then comes the murder and everything goes off the rails all of a sudden you have not only a murder this horrible tragedy which is not solved so you have the mother of, at that point, four small children, including an infant. The family's left without a mother. The father, my great-grandfather, is he can't raise the four children alone. He's a cattle dealer. He works in another province. He works in Saskatchewan. He's often not home at all. 
So there's a lot of pressure on the family, and one of the one of the children is quite ill. It's a terrible time. They go from everything looking like it's, uh, you know, going going straight up to prosperity to all of a sudden being in a real crisis. My great grandfather remarries, and things get back on track. But in the meantime, the whole family relocates to Saskatchewan for seven years. This is something my grandmother, who was one of the children at the time, she never told anybody, including her children, her grandchildren. She never told anyone. She spent half her childhood in Saskatchewan in a very small town of a thousand on the prairies called Kenora. Uh, and this is a part of her history and a part of my family history that just was never passed down at all. No one mentioned it. And it wasn't an unusual thing. Again, there were decent numbers of immigrants, uh, many of them Jewish, but not all, who were settling and establishing new hamlets in Saskatchewan and across Western Canada as the railroads were laid to go across the continent to Vancouver. They'd extend the railroads. The railroad company would say, we need a town here. Who's willing to move to the middle of Saskatchewan? We'll give you free land. And immigrants who had nothing were very happy to take free land in the middle of nowhere. They were used to cold weather. They'd come from Russia. And you have these tiny towns in the middle of the prairie that are settled 100% by immigrants. There were no one who wasn't an immigrant lived in these towns because that's who was willing to, they had nothing to uproot to move to the prairie to a brand new hamlet and build a new life. It, it didn't matter. They were, they had already left everything behind across the world. They were perfectly content to pick up and move to Saskatchewan. If you could give them a land and a place to live. So yeah, uh, getting back to your journey into your family's past, once you had the name, you got the death certificate, you knew the day she died, and now you could go looking through newspapers and get the specifics regarding her murder. Yes, it becomes easy and then it becomes hard again. <laughs> it becomes easy at first because she was murdered in her sleep on August 1st, 1913. Within hours, the police had suspects and a motive and they had two people in custody by that afternoon. And the newspapers that came out that afternoon, just 12 hours after the murder, had already put it on their front page who the suspects were and what the motive was. So it seemed like this is an open and shut case. And I, my search for answers would end very quickly. I found the newspaper stories and there everything was solved. By the time the inquest happened that Tuesday, the murders on Friday, by Tuesday, the entire case had collapsed. All the, the main suspects had been released from jail. They had no motive anymore because they had no suspects anymore. And they called off the inquest. They postponed it for a week. And they kept looking for more clues. And they postponed it for another week. And they finally had the inquest. It went on for hours. And it was inconclusive. And they couldn't pin it on anyone. So it quickly became clear that there was a case. And then it almost as quickly became clear that that wasn't the case. That what seemed like an open and shut case quickly became uh, just an, an open-ended, never-ending cold case for a century. No one was ever convicted. No one was ever charged. Right. So, so I'd like to go back with you to July 31st, 1913, Sarah's last day on Earth. What do we know about that day, the events that led up to her death, in the early morning hours of Friday, August 1st. So we know a fair amount. 
So the first thing to know is that my great-grandfather, David, was away on business in Saskatchewan where he was dealing cattle. He had already been gone for a week by this point. So my great-grandmother, Sarah, was alone in the house in Winnipeg with her four children who were almost six, three, two, and an infant. And the nanny, Victoria, who was, uh, I think she was 19 years old, an Austrian immigrant who'd been working with them for a few months. And she lived with them full time. They were alone in the house. Everything seems normal that day. That evening, uh, Sarah sits out on the porch with her, uh, uh, sorry, her sister-in-law, my, my great-grandfather's sister, who lives down the block comes over to help dictate some letters or take take down some letters for her. My great-grandmother doesn't write well. But she's writing a letter to her husband, who's away on business in Saskatchewan. She's writing a letter to her sister, who has recently immigrated to Canada, who's also living in a different town in Saskatchewan. So her sister-in-law is over helping her write letters. The sister-in-law leaves. The neighbor, Lucy, who's a friend, stops by and sits on the front porch with my great-grandmother for a while. While they're sitting on the front porch, my great-grandmother tells Lucy that a young woman named Mary has walked by. She knows Mary. Mary works down the street. She's a nanny. She's not Jewish. Mary and her boyfriend walk by, and they give her a look, as my great-grandmother tells her friend, as though she's never seen me before. I don't know exactly what that means, but... I'm assuming it's something cold and aloof. Lucy thinks nothing in particular of it. Lucy says goodnight. She goes home and goes to sleep. My great-grandmother turns in around midnight. She goes to sleep in the rear bedroom with the two-year-old in bed with her, the infant in the crib next to her, and the two older children, one of whom was my grandmother, who was three, and the nanny in the next room. And they go to sleep. It's a cool night. The windows are open a crack to let in some cool air and everything seems fine. That's the last night. Everything seems pleasant enough. The only trick here is what's going on with Mary. She's a nanny who works a few doors down. It had been a difficult week between my great grandmother and Mary. Mary, apparently, according to multiple sources, is an anti-Semite. She has come by the house to try to convince Victoria, my great-grandmother's nanny, to stop working for the Jews. She said, we got rid of our Jews in Russia. The pogroms had been going on for years by this point. And we should get rid of them in Canada too. And you shouldn't work for Jews. Never mind that Mary also worked for Jews, but she was trying to convince Victoria to stop working for Jews. My great-grandmother hears this. She comes out of the house and shoves Mary off the porch. And Mary swears revenge. Within a few days, though, everything is patched up, and Mary has come back to the house to volunteer to help Victoria with the children. And she takes the children out for a walk. Then, on July 31st, we see Mary walking by while my great-grandmother's on the porch and looking at her, quote-unquote, as though she'd never seen me before, whatever that means, right before bedtime. And then everyone goes to bed, except Sarah never wakes up. That's her last night. We will be back after these short messages. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. 
Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906, when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Revis Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show has examined weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. We have returned. So how are authorities alerted to her murder. So it's the middle of the night. It's about three in the morning, a quarter to three in the morning. And the oldest of the children, who's about to turn six, who's my great uncle, Harry, he hears the baby crying in the rear bedroom, which isn't unusual. Babies cry in the middle of the night all the time. What's unusual is that the baby is crying and crying and crying and no one's doing anything about it. So he says, there's something wrong. He gets up and goes into the rear bedroom to wake his mother and he can't. So he goes back to the front room and wakes Victoria, the nanny and says, I can't wake my mother. She goes back and she can't wake Sarah. And she turns on the light and she sees blood and she starts to scream. She opens the window and screams for Lucy next door, who had just been out on the front porch with Sarah that evening. She runs outside to the other neighbors to the Shoreman house next door and she bangs on the door and Mr. Shoreman and a house guest named Abram come running in. Everyone comes running in and they tell her you're crazy. This woman's dead. She's been shot. <laughs> it's clear. She's been shot. They call the police. They actually have to go back to the next door neighbor's house to call because 
my great-grandparents' house didn't have a telephone, which was not unusual in that day. They call the police. The police come. They call two doctors in the neighborhood. One comes and declares her dead. The police come and they start their investigation. They're opening up windows to see how someone got in. And Victoria says, when I ran out the front door to tell the neighbors, I noticed the front door was unlocked. And that's strange because I locked it before we went to bed. So someone's come in. The police are there. The detectives come. The coroner comes, makes an initial investigation. He says this woman's been shot uh, not through the open window, the window that had been open to let in the the cool air at night. He said, no, she's been shot at point-blank range. Um, someone put a gun to her head. There are powder marks on her temple. But it happened. No one heard the gunshot. And in fact, the gunshot didn't even wake the two-year-old who was in bed next to my great-grandmother. She continued to sleep through the whole thing. Her nightgown is soaked in blood, but she continues to sleep. So all of this happens in the middle of the night. And by the time the morning comes, word has gotten around this neighborhood that something terrible has happened. And there are throngs in the street, uh, Jews and non-Jews alike, talking about what's happened, trying to sneak in the back door to get a better look. Uh, the police have barricaded the house. They've cordoned it off. And the coroner has come to take the body and they've arranged an inquest for that afternoon. And they think everything is going to be done very quickly. They've arranged a, a coroner's inquest. They think it's all going to be very quick, uh, but it's not. And word is sent to David to return home as soon as possible. Yes. Which is also a challenge. I mean, it's not like today where you just text someone and they get your text. Um, First of all, most people didn't have telephones. And second of all, he was in a hamlet of a thousand people in the middle of the prairies. Um, and I don't know if he had a telephone in his house, but he wasn't in his house anyway. He was a cattle dealer. He was out on the ranch all day. So they sent it. The neighbor finally sends a telegram to the Kenora railway station, which reaches my great grandfather saying, your wife's been killed. Come home immediately. But Again, it's not like today. You can't just hop in your car and go. He didn't have a car. Uh, so he had to wait. There was one train a day. It was leaving at 4.55 that afternoon, and it was a 12 and a half hour train ride. Um, so he went home. But in the meantime, you had four small children who had nowhere to stay. So they wind up going up the block to stay with their aunt, who lives a few doors down, while my great-grandfather is taking the very slow train overnight. Back to Winnipeg. So you've got Mary Monastaka and her boyfriend Stefan, who are immediate suspects, as you've said. And then Victoria, uh, who you've mentioned as well, she was also a serious person of interest. And then there was a second Mary, which was a little confusing for you yes. initially. It was confusing. And this is part of the problem that police and journalists alike had. You're in a neighborhood The Winnipeg's North End 100 years ago was kind of like New York City's Lower East Side 100 years ago. It's almost entirely an immigrant neighborhood. And while it's heavily Jewish, it's not exclusively Jewish, but almost no one's speaking English. Even if some of them know a little bit, they're not, that's not the language they're comfortable in. It's not what they speak to each other. Those aren't the newspapers they read. The Jews are speaking Yiddish and the other immigrants are speaking Polish, Russian, Ukrainian. German, whatever they happen to be speaking, but none of them are really speaking English. The police and the journalists on the scene are trying to get answers. And 
they first of all have a language problem. And then on top of that, you have the problem that you'd have even if you knew the language, which is when you talk to a crowd full of people, you're going to hear a lot of nonsense, a lot of rumors, a lot of gossip, and it's going to be a game of telephone. You're going to hear, well, I heard someone else say that someone else told them that someone else told them that they heard from someone else. And by the time they're telling you, the message is garbled. So the crowd has, the crowd or perhaps police themselves have confused two women named Mary. They initially think there's a woman named Mary and she's a prime suspect. This woman they're looking for is a former employee of my great grandmother. And she's an anti-Semite who came and got shoved off the porch. Uh, and she swore revenge. This is the same person. As it turns out, they're two different people. They're just both named Mary. One is a former employee. The other is the anti-Semite who got shoved off the porch, but they're not the same person. And since that's the, the first theory the police have is that this one person, the former employee who's been fired and then swore revenge, they're looking for that person, but that person doesn't exist. There's the former employee and then there's the anti-Semite, but they're not the same woman. Once they realize they're not the same woman, the whole theory falls apart. And once the theory falls apart, they realize they can't hold on to either Mary. They don't have a case against either one of them. They only have a case against the combined person who doesn't really exist. Also interesting, at the crime scene, nothing was stolen, right? Right. And there were things to steal. There were things right out in the open. I mean, there were, uh, there were apparently fur coats in the attic, but maybe you didn't want to go search the attic because there were other people in the house. But there were things out in the open on the bureau in the back bedroom that could have simply been swiped on the way out. A watch, a piece of jewelry, anything could have been taken. There was sitting right out in the open, but nothing was taken except one thing. And that was the key to the house. <laughs> the key to the house was missing. The key to the house uh, was kept on the bureau in the back bedroom. My great grandfather had a, had a key. He kept it with him. And then there was the key, the spare key to the house. Uh, it was rarely used because they rarely went anywhere. When you have four children and a nanny, you don't really go far. But the key was missing and was not found and was considered a really key piece of evidence, really the only piece of evidence that the police had from the start. The, the fact that the key was not to be found and the fact that the front door was mysteriously unlocked when Victoria ran out to alert the neighbors made police think, Whoever came in had that key. They unlocked the front door, let themselves in, shot Sarah, and left with the key. So whoever has the key is the person who let themselves in, is the person who shot Sarah. So we need to find the key. But they can't find the key until the day the inquest is supposed to happen, which is four days after the murder, when they convene at the house for the inquest and find the key sitting right on top of the dresser in the back bedroom where they've searched a million times. The key has reappeared. And the police realize, and journalists realize, that they may have made a fundamental error. They've cordoned off the house since the day of the murder, since Friday. With one exception, they opened the cordon on Sunday, the day of the funeral, so that people could pay their respects to the family. It's the largest funeral Winnipeg had ever seen. 3,000 people come to pay their respects. Many of them, we can presume, 
are inside that house. They are inside that crime scene. Any one of them could have put the key back. The house was open to literally thousands of people all on Sunday afternoon. And so the police now realize, well, the suspect was probably here on Sunday, but that was a crowd of 3,000. That doesn't narrow it down at all. Uh, And maybe we shouldn't have opened the house on Sunday because it screwed up the one clue we had, which was who had the key. So one of the the mysteries in all of this is what was the real relationship between Mary M and Stefan, right? Right. Yes. It's, it's a question and it's hard to find a definite answer because there's no truly reliable source, but you can sort of put the pieces together when, when police first approach Stefan He says, I'm not going out with Mary. I barely know her. We've been out like twice. It's nothing. He downplays it. But all the evidence points the other direction. The evidence is that when the police go to Mary Monastaka's room a few doors down where she's working, she has a photo of her and Stefan. They had gone to, and this is before, again, a long time ago. You weren't taking a photo casually on your cell phone. You have to go to a photographer's studio. They chose gag outfits to pose for a funny photo together. This is not something you do casually while you're walking down the street. You make a plan to do that. And you don't do that, I assume, assume on your first date. So she had a photo of them on her wall. And it was a photo they had taken together at a photo studio on a date. That's one clue that they had seen each other more than twice. But the more important clue is that while this crowd is gathered outside the house the day of the murder... Stefan doesn't know what's going on. Stefan works at the rail yards about six or seven blocks away from the house. He goes into this confectioner's store around the corner from where the murders happened. And he asks the, the proprietress, he said, what's going on? There's such a huge crowd on Magnus Avenue. What's happening? And she says, what do you mean? What's happening? Don't you read the papers? He said, no, I don't read English. <laughs> what's, what's happening? And she said, well, there's a woman who's been murdered. And uh, the police are looking for, uh, the police have two people in custody, their hired girl, the nanny, Victoria, and the girl you used to come in here with. And he knows she means Mary because he has on more than one occasion gone to this confectioner's store to buy a soda pop, a piece of candy with the woman he's been seeing. So it seems clear that he has been seeing her more than once or twice. In fact, we also know he was with her the night of the murder because they walked past my great-grandmother on her front porch and looked at her, quote-unquote, as if she's never seen me before. She was with Stefan then, again. And another eyewitness said that at midnight that night, he saw the two of them, quote, behaving amorously on the street <laughs> down the block. They went out to make out on a corner. So it's certainly more than once or twice. They'd been out enough for the proprietors of a store to know that they were a couple. They had been to a photographer studio enough for her to put the picture on her wall. And we know that they were out again, the night of the murder and not casually, they were making out on the street. So we know all of these things. So the notion that they weren't really in a relationship seems to hold no water to me. But Stefan, according to police had an alibi, right? He did. He did have an alibi. The, the trick here is that 
was the only records that survive because there are no police records from this crime. There are only newspaper reports about the police records. So it's a secondary source. But these were journalists who did interview people and get quotes from them about these primary sources. So it's not just a secondary source. We have some primary source reporting. The the night of the murder, it seems that Stefan was supposed to be working at the rail yards. He was working overnight. And he has an alibi who said he was working overnight. I don't know how much stock to put in that. I don't know if that's someone who was also in on it. It could be someone who, you know, you, you're working on an overnight shift and someone says, I'm going to take a break. Like, I'm just going to go run and get a beer. He could have gone from the rail yards to commit the murder and back to the rail yards in 15 minutes. It's not that far. So it's certainly possible that he could have had both an alibi to say he was at work and I saw him at work. And then he also had enough time to get away, commit the murder and come back. <laughs> it's, it's not that long a trip. It's not like a long drive. He wouldn't have had to go through Again, not like today. He wouldn't have gone through a place that was lined with security cameras where there'd be proof that he was where he was supposed to be. It's entirely possible that he might have been at work that day, had an alibi who testified, and also snuck out to commit the murder. Part of the reason police let him go after a couple of days was because a witness came forward named C.D. Paulson, who had seen someone heading towards the family's house. And he would describe him to police as, as a man with a short, heavy build and a dark suit of clothes. And Stefan uh, didn't really match that, that description. That's correct. And this is where, you know, looking through clues 100 years later is tricky. I know it was tricky at the time. It's even trickier now because there are so many uh, different clues, and you don't know which ones, A, are reliable, and B, which ones are red herrings. Uh, like, it's entirely possible that this man, C.D. Polson, who happened to be walking home through a residential neighborhood at three in the morning <laughs> on a Thursday night, I don't know why, uh, that it could be possible he saw someone short in a dark suit that wasn't connected to the murder. It's entirely possible. It's also possible that it wasn't Stefan, that it was uh, someone he was associated with, that it was someone he was in cahoots with. It's also possible that he was mistaken in his in his uh, identifying characteristics because other people they wind up holding in suspicion are people who don't match that, that description at all. There are people, is there a man with a mustache? There's someone who's tall. There's someone who's short. There's someone who's dark and swarthy. The, the descriptions keep changing and they don't line up. Uh, it's not to say that people are lying. It's to say that, first of all, these are not terribly reliable. And second, that just because you saw someone doesn't mean they were the person who committed the crime. It, it, it seems odd how many people were out on the street at three in the morning on a Thursday night. <laughs> but apparently there were a lot. I don't, know, I don't know how clearly lit the streets were. These are streets that aren't even paved yet. They're dirt roads. So the notion that people have, you know, really great vision at three in the morning down a poorly lit dirt road seems uh, not so reliable to me. So the family's servant, Victoria, uh, who was held in jail for quite a while, you write that her story remained consistent, correct? She did not appear to be lying. It, it appeared she wasn't lying. And one of the reasons it appeared she wasn't lying is that when she said, 
I locked the door before we went to bed. She implicated herself. She put herself in the house and she left herself as one of the people who could have, well, if someone else had a key, who could have passed them a key? She could have easily at any time. So she could have lied and said, I forgot to lock the door, in which case anyone could have come in. But by saying I locked the door and then it was unlocked, it presupposes that someone else had a key and the person who could most easily pass it to them was her. So it doesn't implicate her as the murderer, but it implicates her as someone who was probably involved. And it wasn't that police thought that she had pulled the trigger, but police thought the fact that she was tell a story that could implicate her meant that she probably wasn't lying about it. Because if you were going to lie, you'd let yourself off the hook. If you were going to lie, you'd say, I left the door unlocked. It was my bad. But so I have no idea anyone could have gotten in. That would have left her off the hook completely. She would have, she would have seemed like a careless nanny, but she wouldn't have seemed like a murderer. The fact that she didn't protect herself that way made them think she was trustworthy, but it also made them think that she knew more than she was saying. And that's why they kept her for weeks. They kept her long after they released everyone else from jail, long weeks after everyone else was let go. But she, she held firm with, with her story. She did. She held firm, um, but she did also start bringing up sort of secondary stories uh, oh, there was a man who was harassing me at the window the week before the murder. I forgot to tell anybody, but there was a man who was scraping at the window trying to get my attention. Um, well, could you describe him? No, I can't really describe him. Do you know why he was there? No, I don't know why he was there. Um, those things hadn't come out immediately. They came out after she was already being held, which seemed like either she's it's possible she just forgot to mention that there was a threatening man outside the window, uh, which seems like a strange thing to forget when there's a murder in your house or that she was trying to throw suspicion off herself or people. She knew that she was trying to throw it off anyone who had been, already been under investigation and trying to create a sort of mysterious character who could never really be found because there was no description. He's just a man at the window. Um, and that maybe by making that up, you could deflect any suspicion from yourself. It's possible. I don't know. But she she did hold, she held firm in the story about herself and locking the door. She Her story about what else she knew was not quite so consistent. It seemed to keep getting bigger the longer she was in jail. Things kept coming up that she'd forgotten to mention. Hmm. Was there any suspicion right away that, that David had something to do with this? There was on the, on the part of police and, and reporters, because it's such a common thing. Um, and it is fairly common. It's not quite as common as it's made out to be, but it's fairly common that a spouse would be the murder suspect. Um, now, David had an alibi in that he was hundreds of miles away and had been for a week already, but that doesn't mean he couldn't have ordered a hit. So he wasn't ever suspected of being the person who pulled the trigger, but he was he was on a list of suspects because that's routine that a, a jealous husband could be a suspect. This is one instance, though, when they talk to they go out on the street and talk to the neighbors. The neighbors are a gossipy lot. First of all, any neighbors are a gossipy lot. But also, this is a very tightly knit community of recent immigrants. So it's it's tighter than usual. They all know each other quite well. They live amongst each other constantly. 
And they often have not nice things to say about each other. <laughs> it's a gossipy crowd. But when asked about the marriage between my great-grandparents, all the neighbors, and they said they talked to hundreds of them, all the neighbors say, oh my gosh, no, this is a great marriage. There were no problems in this marriage. Yes, they used to have arguments about relatives staying at their house. Uh, initially, a couple years before, my great-grandfather's younger brother had moved in with them for a while. So the house was quite crowded. But they said that's all in the past. Everything is harmonious. They're doing well financially now, so the economic uh problems aren't so big a deal anymore everything's going great they have four kids everyone seems happy and no marital discord didn't seem like a part of it now it's always possible that that's not the case because everyone knows you can look at a relationship or a marriage from outside and it looks different than it does from the inside the to me the most important person uh, along this line of thinking is lucy she is the next door neighbor She's my great-grandmother's good friend. She's the last person who speaks to her before she dies. And first of all, if there were marital strife, Lucy would have known about it. I feel certain she would have known about it. But even if she only suspected it, Lucy is testifying at the inquest. Lucy's not going to cover up for my great-grandfather if she really thinks he's involved. Because what would that mean? That would mean... I'm going to, I know the man who murdered my best friend and neighbor, but I'm going to make sure he goes free so that I can continue to live next door to the killer and the four children whose mother he has murdered. (laughs) That just seems like a long shot to me. If anyone's going to rat him out, it's Lucy, because she's not going to want to live next door to him after he murdered her best friend. And Lucy has nothing to say about that. Nothing to say. Also, the letters that my great-grandmother was dictating the night she was murdered to my great-grandfather, there's apparently, I don't know what they say because it's not in the inquest record, but apparently there's nothing implicating in there either. So it's not like she wrote him a letter hours before she died saying, like I said, I want a divorce or I'm taking the children and leaving Canada. There's nothing, there's nothing along those lines in the letter or that would have been evidence in the inquest against my great-grandfather. It's not. We will return after a short break. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And back again. There were rumors, though, right, about Sarah having had an affair back in the old country. Back 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 in the old country, yes. So before she came to Canada, she had, uh, she was pursued by, I don't know if it was ever 
consummate or anything ever came of it. She was pursued by a, we- a wealthy young man in near the Ukrainian town where she lived, and she rebuffed him, and he swore that he'd get revenge. Um, but she left her home and came to Canada, and that's she had already been in Canada for seven years by the time she was killed. So it's a minimum of seven years, probably eight, nine years since that had happened. Is it possible that that fellow followed her around the world, found her and murdered her? Any one of those three things is possible, but not easy. Mind you, she left home in Russia as uh, Shifra Averbruch. She wasn't headed to Winnipeg. She was headed to North America. She sailed from Liverpool into Quebec City, and she was supposed to be going to stay with cousins in Portland, Oregon. Along the way, she stopped in Winnipeg to visit an uncle and met my great-grandfather and stayed there, married him and stayed there. And her name became Mrs. David Feinstein. (laughs) So this jilted suitor back in Russia would have to know, oh, Shifra Averbruch, who was sailing out of Liverpool on her way to Portland, Oregon, probably stopped in Winnipeg, married a man, changed her first and last name, and I found her. It seems preposterous. Possible, but a real long shot. But the police were really, they were going on anything they could come up with. This man had sworn revenge. It was was a story that people had told about her, that they knew about her. They also were concerned that perhaps she was part of a secret society back in Russia, uh, and that that may or may not have been connected to this jilted lover that they had sent the women, basically the network of women to follow her and that maybe Victoria and Mary were part of this secret society of women who, although they were not the jilted lovers, they were, you know, helping to track her down. Who knows what they believed? Um, All of this seems extremely far-fetched and also a little bit, uh, enmeshed with xenophobia of the day that, oh, those crazy immigrants, they're up to no good and they're part of you know criminal networks. I, I don't buy into much of it. I don't really think her you know, teenage nanny was really part of a secret society dating back to the old country where she was in cahoots with a man from Russia who'd been jilted by my great-grandmother a decade earlier I, when the nanny herself was like seven. <laughs> I don't believe that. Is it possible? It's possible. I, I just don't, I just don't believe it. I think it's part of the the idea that these crazy immigrants who we can't understand are up to no good. They're part of criminal networks. They're not to be trusted. Um, and who knows what what they've brought over from the old country. If they brought over vendettas and grudges and violence, they've brought it with them to the new world. So it's all of these things are possible, but they really seem to smack of that kind of xenophobia to me that that's how police and journalists were looking at these, the strange others who were the immigrants and what they were up to in secret. Like they were always up to something nefarious. So the coroner's inquest, were there any especially compelling moments for you uh, regarding the inquest? And what was the result of the coroner's inquest? The, one of the strange things about the inquest is who didn't testify because it went on for hours and there were, I think like 18 people testified. Uh, there were no detectives, no detectives testified. I don't really understand why not. 
Uh, and the people I contacted at the police museum in Winnipeg also said, that's odd. Uh, that seems strange. So I don't know what to make of that. The, the testimony um, that came out during the, tr- during the inquest, you get a lot more information from my great-grandfather about what was happening and from Victoria, uh, Mary, the other Mary. But they also brought in this expert. And this is, you know, if you want to see how, how rumors and reporting go, it's sort of a given from the get-go. No one heard this gun go off. No one heard it. The, the four children who were in the house, including two, one who was in bed with my grandmother, she didn't wake up. The baby next to the bed didn't wake up. No one in the front room heard the gunshot. The neighbors didn't hear the gunshot. So it's assumed from the outset that there was a silencer. That's sort of a given. Everyone agrees there was a silencer. There's a gun expert at the inquest who said, no, there's no such thing as a silencer on, a, on this kind of gun that shoots this kind of bullet. It's not possible. Um, well, so there goes that theory. That's just a minor detail, but it's the kind of thing that makes you think, oh, even the things that everyone has agreed on aren't necessarily true because this gun expert says it's not possible. It's, that, that's not a thing. There was, there was no silencer. Um, so it's that kind of thing that made me look askance at some of the official testimony and some things that were accepted as fact. A lot of the things that were accepted as fact weren't necessarily fact, whether it's that or Stefan having an alibi at the rail yard. I sort of take all of it with a grain of salt. You asked members of your family um, as, as you were researching the case who they believed killed Sarah. Yes. And they said the husband, David. Yes. It's a, it's a, common, it's a common idea to think that, that David had something to do with it. But there was I – just, I just don't buy it. Um, it seems too monstrous. First of all, it just seems horrible to believe. But if it were the case, there are so many other things that, that he logically would have done after the murder that he did not do. The first thing he would have done – this is 100 years ago, remember – and the family was living in Winnipeg, and he was working in Saskatchewan 12 hours away by train. The first thing he would have done, if he could have, is put the children in an orphanage. So orphanages were not the same things as – it's not some Dickensian workhouse the way we think of Oliver Twist. Orphanages were places where sometimes they were literally orphaned, but other times they were just children whose parents didn't have the means to care for them full time or one parent had died and you could be in there temporarily. It was a place to put your kids where they got um, three meals a day and a place to stay. And they didn't carry the stigma that they would later carry. Um, And in fact, the main Jewish orphanage in Winnipeg was founded by my great grandfather's brother. So certainly placing the kids there would have been the first thing you would do. And if he had, as people suspected, if he had some kind of, affair going on and that this was really about getting my great grandmother out of the way so he could continue his affair, then you'd think he would have done that, but he didn't. He stayed single for two years, which again, doesn't sound like a long time, but is a long time then to stay a single father with four very young children um, when you had other options. And he didn't, he didn't do any of that. Um, it doesn't seem like he was having an affair. None of the signs point to that. The other 
theory that got kicked around by some people was a possible connection to organized crime. And it does seem like my, my great grandfather was in business with his brothers. He had five, there were five boys in the family and all five were in business together. And it seems that some of them were also involved in some illegal things. A couple of them I know were involved in illegal things because they were nabbed in a massive tax evasion case. <laughs> um, but I also suspect that they were, that some of them at least were involved in bootlegging during prohibition, Canadian and then American prohibition. The trouble is, is that my great grandfather seems to be the one that everyone agrees was the good one in the family. And he steered clear of those things that he was the brother who didn't get his hands dirty like that. And in fact, he left Winnipeg in the forties and moved to Vancouver to sort of be away from a lot of those shady businesses the brothers were doing back in Winnipeg. So his involvement in organized crime also seems like maybe it's true, but it might only be true for his brothers and not for him. Well, maybe this hit was his warning to stay out of organized crime, or maybe his hit was trying to convince him to get into organized crime. I, I don't know. I'm not sure just because organized crime is part of the family saga. doesn't mean the murder was tied to it because if it was meant to send a message, I don't know what that message was and I can't figure it out. So while I'm not ruling it out, it doesn't seem like the likeliest possibility. It seems like there are simpler answers that make more sense. Uh, this is considered a cold case, right? For the Winnipeg Police Department? Oh yeah, nothing's, nothing's happened to it since 1913. There is no file. There's nothing being worked on. And when the police, when they finished the inquest and it was in, inconclusive newspapers kept reporting on it for about well, kind of on and off through the end of the year. And there were other suspects who were brought in. It would make the newspapers and they offered a reward. Then they doubled the reward. Then they doubled the doubled reward. So police did keep investigating and then it just fizzled. It, they never reached a conclusion. They never had a solid lead. They had a lot of leads that didn't pan out. And sort of the closest thing you get to a, um, an arrow pointing forward is investigators saying, I, if we were going to dig into this deeper, we'd kind of have to go back to Russia and they're not going to do that. That's there are no resources to do that, to send investigators to speak who speak Russian to go back and see if perhaps it was the spurned lover or one of these secret societies or something, some, something else in her past or a Russian mob hit. There's, there's no, there are no resources to do that kind of investigation. So that's kind of where they leave it is we don't know. We're all out of ideas. There might be more to be found if we could go to Russia, but we're not gonna. So that's the end. And then it just peters out. It's never in the paper again after new year's day, 1914. That's the last time it's in the papers until now. Where do you think your mom got this? The stuff about the sniper. That is the mystery. I cannot solve the, one of the things I wanted to find out is if anyone else in the family, any cousins also heard that story about the drive-by sniper. Uh, so I could try to figure out where that came from because that's definitely not what happened. The, the one, the core of it is true. My great grandmother was murdered. Nothing else in that story is true. She wasn't breastfeeding. It wasn't outside. It wasn't on the front porch. It wasn't winter. It wasn't a drive-by sniper. None of that's true, but she was murdered. I couldn't find a single person, a single cousin who had ever heard that story. So no one could tell me where it came from. Now, when the murder happened, my grandmother was three. She was there, but she probably doesn't, didn't remember what had actually happened. And I don't know that she was ever told all the details of what really happened. 
So it's possible she made it up out of bits of information people told her and she filled in the blanks. How she came up with the drive-by sniper and the breastfeeding part, I have no idea. It's also possible someone else made it up. Although, again, I don't know why. It's not a story that's less terrifying for children. <laughs> don't go outside in winter. People in cars are going to shoot you. That's not that's not a soothing story for children. So I don't know why someone would make up a sort of equally horrifying story as opposed to just telling the truth. I don't know. But I do know that this is my grandmother's story. And that's what she told to my mother. We're the only branch of the family tree that had that legend. Other branches either knew nothing or a tiny bit of the truth. Those were sort of the two other options. No one else had this fairy tale. We were it. Hmm. So part of what drove you to investigate, uh, to, to find answers, was that you wanted to share what you learned with your mom. Uh, sh she was your sounding board. Yes. And kind of your, your partner in this. But it got increasingly difficult, right, due to her declining health. Right. You know, at the very beginning she was still mostly together when I first started this quest. By the time I started finding some answers, because it came in sort of waves, I'd find out a, a bunch of information, then nothing for a couple of years. Then I'd find out more information. I'd find a new, new source. Uh, I'd find a new cousin. I'd find a, another trove of newspaper archives. Pretty quickly, she went from understanding what I was finding and being on the journey with me to understanding as sort of a spectator and an audience. And then she moved to, she could understand what I was telling her, but she couldn't retain it. So I would tell her what I discovered and she'd go, Oh, that's so interesting. And then the next day she'd start again on the drive by sniper story. I'd say, no, no, no. Remember we debunked that last night and I debunk it again. And she'd say, Oh, that's so interesting. And the next day we'd start over. And then we went from her not being able to retain information to her not being under to understand information. Um, and that's the point where I walked away from it for a while, uh, for a year or two, uh, or possibly even more than a year or two, when I thought I was doing this for my mother and now she can't understand it. So what's the point? Um, let me just think about what she needs. And what she needs is not me solving this murder a hundred years later. She needs like someone to help her get dressed in the morning and someone to help keep her out from starting a fire in the kitchen. She doesn't need someone to solve a hundred year old murder for kicks. But once she moved into a home, um, I went back to it and decided that I was going to keep going. I was going to keep doing research, keep looking for answers, just not for her, but for me. Um, and that now this was my quest, not my quest for her. And once I did that, I delved back into it. And that's where I started to find what I think are the right answers. Uh, but that had been, there was quite a gap in there in the middle of the research. Uh, and that's where it turned into a book. Uh, and that's why the story of my mother and the story of the murder are, they're the same story to me. They are, each one is intertwined with the other. Right, right. Well, this has been so interesting. So tell us more about you, your website, your book, and how people can get in touch with you. Uh, well, people can, can always go to my website, which is waynehoffmanwriter.com. You can follow me on Instagram at Wayne Hoffman Writer. You can read more about the book on my publisher's website, which is Heliotrope Books. The website is heliotropebooks.com. 
or you can order the book from your favorite bookstore or on Amazon. It's available in paperback and hardback and uh, ebook and audiobook. So whichever format is your favorite, that's the one you should use. What has been your immediate family's reaction to the book? H- have you shared it with them yet? I, I have. They've all read it within the past couple weeks. Um, a lot of this, the history, the history of my great grandmother's murder and that research is kind of titillating because there's distance to it. The part of the book that's about my mother's struggle with Alzheimer's is much more immediate and sort of raw and ongoing. She's still with us and still suffering from it. So those parts are, are tougher, I think, for the family to read. But already, this is a process we're still in the middle of. What all my family members have told me after reading it is there were whole parts of this I'd already forgotten. There were whole incidents I'd forgotten. There were whole trends I'd forgotten. There were whole pieces of the timeline that I'd forgotten. And this is happening now. This is recent history that is still ongoing. So it sort of gives you a, a clue about how, how much is lost at the history of what happened a hundred years ago, not to you or your parents or your grandparents, but to your great grandparents. That's especially in a day when you didn't have digital media, social media, things weren't written down so much. So much of that's lost because the things that we are currently going through right now are already being lost. Even if we, as we speak, if I hadn't put them in the book, we would have forgotten a lot of them, um, whole conversations, whole incidents. And, it's very hard to preserve that kind of thing. Even if you're do, you're intentional about it, it's very, very hard to preserve memory. Um, so that's one of the things I think uh, the book has done for my family in particular is the, the parts about my mother are not revelations to anyone in my family. We were all there, but sometimes they are reminders of things we have already forgotten so quickly. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. Again, I have been speaking to Wayne Hoffman, the author of The End of Her, Racing Against Alzheimer's to Solve a Murder. This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Revenis and have a safe tomorrow.